Coming up, Topher Grace talks War Machine, David Soren directs Captain Underpants, the first epic movie, and Gilbert Gottfried talks about being hated on the internet. I mostly want people to check their politics at the door yeah. and more kind of take the emotional ride of what it would feel like to be in that position. The internet, I thought this is the entire world who feels this way. That's what the internet seemed to me like. Like, like, like they took a vote of every single human being in the world and they hated me. Well, obviously you can't make a Captain Underpants movie without body humor, uh, but we did hold ourselves to a very high standard. Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krause. I'm Richard Krause. Come on in, make sure the door is shut tight behind you, pull up a seat at the bar, pour yourself a Negroni, and sit back and enjoy the interviews. Uh, we've got a jam-packed show for you today. A little bit later on, Gilbert Gottfried will be here, and this is just a taste, just a hint of what is to come. In a future episode of the House of Krause, we sit down and we go along with Gilbert and talk about everything that you've ever wanted to know about Gilbert Gottfried. Today, we give you a little tantalizing taste treat of what that interview will be like. Then we'll talk to David Soren. David Soren is the director of Captain Underpants, the first epic movie. Uh, he is an animator originally from Canada, 20 years in Los Angeles. He's worked on loads of movies that you've seen, the Madagascar movie, Shrek, all that kind of stuff. Made a great movie a little while ago called Turbo. He's back now bringing the beloved children's books to the big screen. Loads of potty humor. We talk about that in just a little while. First up, though, I want to get to Topher Grace. Everybody remembers him as Eric Foreman on That 70s Show. He's back now in a Netflix-only movie. This one bypassed the big screen, even though it stars Brad Pitt. It's called War Machine. It's based on the Michael Hastings New York Times bestseller, The Operators, and it fictionalizes the real-life career implosion of General Stanley McChrystal, the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. An article in Rolling Stone that reported on McChrystal's disappointment with Obama and his policies undid the general's distinguished career. Grace plays one of the key figures in how all this unravels uh, for McChrystal, who in the movie is renamed McMahon and played by Brad Pitt. He was the civilian press advisor to the general. He's young, he's brash, and according to Topher Grace, he's the sharpest knife in the drawer. Here's my chat with Topher Grace about War Machine. It's a parody. It's a lot of things, but mm -hmm. it, it, in some ways it's a parody, I think. It, I'm not sure about the definition of parody. I know it's like really sardonic. Yeah. Know, like, yeah. And it, how, Dr. Strangelove. And, yeah, exactly. I don't think those are parodies, right? I think they're like uh, black comedy, maybe. Yeah, or yeah. like a jaundiced look at yeah. what's happening. And I guess the, the question is, I think, you know, how do you make something today mm -hmm. when the world seems to be slipping into its own kind of sardonic <laughs> behavior yeah, you know? already in the comedy yeah yeah oh i don't know man i don't know i mean look we made it in obama's america yeah um but it's crazy releasing it now it's more timely than when we shot it yeah so i haven't been in a lot of projects that are like that um but uh yeah i 
Well, the really cool thing is that it's not an American telling the story. Right. You know, uh, David is just a great talent out of Australia, and I think no matter what, he brings a not American POV. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting to have another set of eyes. You know, as we sit here today, I look at things in your country differently than you probably would because yes. yeah. we're the outsiders, right? Yeah. And, and David is exactly yeah. that. You know, someone soon I'll be your neighbor. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. But he uh, he would be someone uh, who would bring a, a different and completely. Uh, I was going to say objective. That's not it. But a, a different kind of uh, set of eyes to it than than perhaps he would. Yeah, he wrote it and directed it, and uh, yeah. you know, Animal Kingdom. Yeah, it was like I just saw him last night at the premiere, and you go like, what a great job. The, those the balance between the fact that he can be that heightened in terms of humor at some points, yeah. and then that real when they're on the battlefield he told me or maybe he said this in an interview that i was in but i thought oh yeah it hadn't really occurred to me but he was there at every step of the process because he wrote it is that he wanted to do a war film this is before he was sent the book by brad's company but he couldn't think of a way to do a war film that didn't um kind of like glorify war even if you're not trying to glorify war you then wind up glorifying and this is like he did it man like he did not glorify it how did you feel when you first saw this then you're you're given this thing and you know i don't know i don't know if it's controversial <laughs> i don't know if it is do you think it is i don't you know think... i had the same wonder the other i guess i guess because it it seems to have a political yeah leaning even though it's not because he's not from america yeah. but uh but i think what what i love so much about with the film he made because i this was in the script but then i really felt it because he's such an amazing filmmaker is that it's really just the emotional journey right. of this character, which is, that's so hard to get into a war thing. Yeah. You know, like, or in a political, or even a biopic, or any of those things, like, but he really put, anyone who's willing to watch it understands it on an emotional level, which is, I think, a much more effective way to communicate to the audience than, you know, facts or whatever. Well, I, it's funny, right? Fact, you're a post-fact uh, world. I go no, I mean, you yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah. Um, well, I mean, truly, it's not, it's nonfiction. He changed yeah. all the names, and I think it was for that reason. Yeah. Um, it, I think sometimes when you have what is a very specific story, because this is, in a lot of ways, a very specific story, but it, but it becomes universal because of the emotions, because of like, the feelings that we can yeah. all kind of, we'll, we'll, we, at some point in our lives, won't be in that specific situation, but we we'll have be in been, a mess yeah. of some kind. <laughs> that, uh, that's so right. That's yeah. so right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. Can you quote yourself as... <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll put your name on that if you Thanks. want. I'm, I'm That's true. To do that. That's really what it is. It's like... Uh, yeah, and he put... I think when he read the book, I guess, he saw... I mean, I certainly would have... I read The Operators, but I didn't... Yeah. This is after I got the part. But I wouldn't have thought to write the script that way. But he... That scene with him and Meg Tilly where they're crying. Yeah. I mean, I was like... Yeah. How do you vilify this guy you know like yeah. oh so smart well that stuff is great and, and uh there's uh, uh the dinner where mm-hmm. uh the, the seat of the um the iraqi mm-hmm. guy is taken and that and and the the, the flash of anger that comes from him and then dissipates fairly quickly mm-hmm. but it's a really cool moment and it's one it's those moments that aren't really dialogue heavy though that tell you everything you need to know about the character yeah, that's when you're really starting to get into that character. That yeah. at the beginning, it starts off more factual, yeah, more yeah. like giving you information about the character and the situation, and then by the end, you're just riding it emotionally, which is 
Uh, he's a really brave, awesome filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. And so how do you approach a, a part like that? So you get the script, is it all on the page, or do you bring things to it? Um, in a different way than... Uh, yeah, well, look, it was, it was a really great script, so yeah. I was most interested in just being in this great movie, but then I thought, well, this character is really interesting. I'm, you have a little fear when you start with these. You know, they put us through a boot camp and stuff. Yeah, right. Where you're like, um, am I going to be able to learn everything I need to learn to kind of... Look, as an actor, you're always kind of faking it. Yeah, yeah, but I'm going to learn as much as I need to learn to be this character. And on the first day, I pop my collar up. I think I have it up in there. And uh, I go like... He says... Uh, the military advisor came up to me and said... They don't do that in the, in the military. I said, okay. And the director goes, no, no, no. Like, he's playing an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> he would totally have his, <laughs> his collar. And he's, yeah, he's a CPO. He's like from the, you know, he's a civilian. Yeah. And, uh, and he doesn't even really care about the war or what's going on. It, there's all these different levels of people with hubris, you know. Well, it's funny. You call him an idiot. I, I thought of him not so much as an idiot, as someone who was a little... I don't know. Well, what is the definition of an idiot? Yeah, I, know, but, 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 I think but, it has to do with knowing you don't know and still going ahead anyway. Yeah, maybe, you know? yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah, maybe if that's the definition, then, then that's then, right. I don't think it is, but yeah. that's what I would, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I think, you know, he's someone who, who blunders ahead without knowing, without thinking of the repercussions. That actually does sound like the definition of an idiot. Maybe that's it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, that's definitely yeah. him, but... Uh, I was I was very interested in the character, but I was also so interested in what the whole thing. I did a movie last year that was about Dan Rather, yeah, true. and it was kind of yeah. another recent history thing. Yeah, and uh, it's for an actor when you're on set. Look, I like doing all different types of movies, but yeah. this is the best kind because you're filming during the day, and then you know we were in this hotel out in the middle of the desert. You know, I'll come home, everyone's eating dinner together around the table, right. and you're ta- discussing that day's stuff. And then you kind of bring that with you into the next day, like it was, and, and even now, there's more interesting stuff for you and I to talk about. Yeah, there's yeah. more research to be done. It's just a deeper kind of well, you know. Do you, uh, do you find like in this process, because you'll talk to 50 people today probably over the course mm-hmm. of a day, um, do you learn stuff from it? Do they ask you, do they see things that you missed the first for time sure, through? For sure, for yeah. sure. But it's more interesting with this type of film, yeah. right, than um, other types. But yeah. uh, I think there's a conversation when, look, I've seen it on the big screen because I went to the premiere and I, so they screened it for me before that. And uh, the conversations after you watch it, I mean, that's like my favorite kind of film to be in. People are, it's just like us at that dinner table. Yeah. You know, everyone wants to talk about it. And so, yes, yeah, so it's more interesting today to talk about it. Interesting that it's uh, produced by and you know streamed on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I, and and you know, I was speaking with a Canadian filmmaker, a guy called Richie Maida, recently. He's a, he's well known here, and he's made some really beautiful films for twenty years. And he mm-hmm. said, you know, I think that the a, the era what of, is he made? That uh, a movie called Amal, which is the one you got to see, but uh, oh, um, it. it's a it's a set in India, and it's just a, a beautiful mm-hmm. story about a guy who. Uh, <clears throat> maybe a bit more divine than <clears throat> people on the street think he is. Right, it's right, fantastic. Right, right, right. Um, and other things too, but uh, Amal is the one that you should, it's Amal. probably on Netflix, you right, okay. probably have a look. But he was saying that, you know, when he first started, that it was still in the era when it was before streaming, so you would expect to see your stuff on the big screen, and as a filmmaker, you're brought up to, to expect that. 
the rules have changed completely now. And a movie like this, uh, at the price point that it must have been at, may not get greenlit anymore by the studios. Oh, I don't think it would have. Yeah, it's crazy because it's got the biggest movie star in the world, yeah. in it, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But for me, who uh, uh, just an actor for hire, like I, uh, my I know there's a big debate going on in Cannes about this today. I, I heard about Pedro Moldovar. Yeah, yeah, and I look like so. I was saying I'm just an actor, yeah. like. Pedro is much, you know, more qualified to have that debate. But just for me as an actor, I, I don't think this was going to get made anywhere else. And yeah. and I and if it did, I'm not sure it would have been um, left unneutered. Right. You know, like it, it's really what I read in that first draft. And you know, a lot of that is Brad um, and his producing company um, getting the protecting him and getting with the right partner and I think Netflix was it's just a really exciting time for actors yeah you know well, you the, can I mean look at what Elizabeth Moss is doing yeah, like I know. it's like she was in that Dan Rather movie yeah I'm looking at her like I don't even know you like I, you know we spent all this time and you're yeah. like she's blowing my mind in the like, Handmaiden's Tale right now yeah. she's amazing I think every actor is jealous of uh, anyone who has eight hours to do a yeah. character instead of two you know yeah yeah, yeah. and uh I just think it's also the reality of where it's going. But if we put that aside, like, yeah. I just think there's so many fast, you know, fantastic opportunities for actors right now. Would you go back to doing uh, a long form series, like a weekly or something that was longer sure. than eight weeks, like something that was going to go on? Oh yeah, well, I, I think in the future, like, uh, I don't know. Look, I I'm not good at this, but I think like what I'm starting to see is the eight hour movie. Right. Isn't that what it is? Yeah. Like. Like the night of. I was on a straight up, like, you're doing uh, 24 episodes a year type of thing. I don't know if I'd be down to do that again, only they don't really make them that much anymore. Like, and networks aren't as much of a destination. Um, But I do think, like, when I watch Westworld or The Handmaid's Tale or Stranger Things, I go, like, this is better as a viewer. Yeah. Like, I'm in, I am in Westworld. You know what I mean? Like, I, I can walk around and I know where everything is, you know, like, and uh, emotionally, you're kind of in it at that level too. When when House of Cards comes on, I am like, uh, I watch it so much. I mean, I binge it that I'm like starting to turn and talk to the camera. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But there's yeah. no, ca- you know what I mean? Like, I'm it's like starting to do this all the time. Yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's just kind of like, I think it's a better. I, I just love it as a viewer. Yeah, as a viewer, but as you're saying, professionally, oh. it offer it, it offers up more interesting things. I think because. Unless you're, you know, in superhero movies, which you've done, but unless you're, you know, I don't know, Iron Man or something, that's where the money is going these days. So yeah, it's hard I'm not to even sure the character growth is going there. I mean, you know, like that's what's so interesting to me about, I think, to most actors about Netflix is like, yeah. man, I, these shows, you know, you can, I mean, like S.T.A.P.S. was on Netflix, but like Breaking Bad, like that's character growth. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. essentially, some of these shows, you start the exact same way you. Yeah. What do you hope people take away from War Machine? Um, I mostly want people to check their politics at the door yeah, and yeah. more kind of take the emotional ride of what it would feel like to be in that position. And yeah. I think Brad did such an amazing job of kind of, he has such a great way of portraying like kind of original characters and bringing that to this general and then, you know, kind of making you understand what that situation is and 
I wonder though, like you say, check politics at the door. Absolutely, you know that's the you, that would be great in in a different kind of world. Yeah. But people don't anymore. I mean, it, you know, yeah. if every conversation that I have, how's your dog? Oh, my dog's fine, but what about that Trump? It's, yeah, yeah. It automatically goes there, and I think yeah. it's we're now in sort of like a, a like a post political world now, where it's just everywhere. Like you can't avoid it. Uh, yeah, sure, it's like it's the. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now, yeah. yeah. But I, it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I will tell you, I'm, if I had to choose, which of course it wasn't up to me, I would definitely have it be coming out now, especially when we're talking about increasing troops to Afghanistan. It's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, just really the right time for it to come out. That was Topher Grace. Dial him up on Netflix and check out War Machine. For the next movie that we're going to talk about, though, you'll have to go to the movie theater, at least for now. Captain Underpants, the first epic movie, directed by David Soren. If you have little kids, you're already familiar with the rambunctious fourth graders George Beard and Harold Hutchins. This story is the origin story of Captain Underpants. This is the story of how Captain Underpants went from a character in a comic that those two rambunctious fourth graders draw to the skies when he becomes human and becomes an actual superhero. It's a really funny movie. I didn't expect to really get into it as much as I did because, frankly, you know, I don't have kids and I haven't read the books. But I talked to David Soren about how I felt that the movie was kind of subversive. It's a kid's movie, but there's an edge to it. Here's our conversation. Do you think that uh, in some ways that given its big kind of glossy front, it's big, you know, it's the the look of the thing, um, that it's a little bit subversive in some ways because it really is about saying, I thought anyway, you know, I'm not going to conform to what you want me to do, what my principal wants me to do. I'm, I'm not going to have restrictions on on how I think. I, I, am I stretching here a little bit too? No, much? I don't think you are at all. I mean, I think that's, I, I, that's one of the things that has made the book uh, successful and controversial at the same time. You know, um, but I, I, I mean, I've never personally understood the the controversy. Uh, because, well, you know, specifically in the case of the books, they've got a terrible principal um, who's doing horrible things to their school and canceling the music and arts program and putting an electronic door opener in his office instead. So I think, you know, for them, like, standing up to that particular authority, you know, he deserves to be questioned. Um, and I think kids in general, you know, it's, it's, these days it's not a bad thing for them to have their own voice you know, and stand up for themselves and have rights. So, um, yeah, I, I, I always saw it as a really um, inspiring part of those books and, and, and a key to their success. Maybe the, uh, the the viewers of this film will be the next wave of the resistance and that's right. <laughs> that's right. Years. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, though. There's a very, there's a rebellious spirit to, to those characters, and um, I think that they're not little angels. And I think that's part of why uh, kids love reading them. Yeah, and and I, and I guess what I think parents too. I think that there there's yeah. a point in in kids' lives where where that is kind of beaten out of them a little bit. You know, exactly. they start to you know pay a little bit too much attention to the rules, and and some of the fun goes out of of just letting your mind wander and you know and be a kid. And this celebrates that. 
Yeah, I can see it in my son. I mean, he's he's in fourth grade now, and the you know the the, the earlier grades, there's a lot more creativity, a lot more play in the education, and then suddenly it kind of gets it gets a little more regimented. It gets it gets more uh, more like school, yeah. um, and it's it's sort of frustrating to watch the that get beaten out of kids, and you, you want to protect that. Uh, aspect of creativity in them. Do you think that you've managed to hang on to that a little bit? Because, I mean, from what we see in the film last night and, and just given your, your choice of profession, I think that probably you have to have a little bit of that spirit. Absolutely. I think it's, uh, it's something I hope I never lose. Um, yeah, when you, um, you need a little bit of that uh, nonconformist <laughs> attitude, I think, when you're an artist. Um, and, and making movies in general, especially when you're, um, you know, you're trying to get a point of view across. You, movies are best when they have a specific point of view. And uh, if things are too watered down or too, you know, generic, uh, they cease to have an identity anymore. Do you think uh, that looking beyond the books, we can, we'll, we'll go back to that in a little bit, but sure. um, going beyond the books, some of the other influences, when I was sitting there watching this, I was thinking of like Jay Ward's Fractured Fairy Tales. I was thinking yeah. of, of things like that, um, that, that really felt, I remember as a kid uh, watching that and thinking, wow, even, you know, in that you know, state where you are a kid and you're, you know, you, you're more accepting of, of things that don't always quite make sense, you know. I, I kept thinking, wow, this is pretty wild, and I loved it. Um, was Jay Ward any kind of influence on this? Sorry, we didn't talk about Jay Ward, but we talked a lot about other things, especially The Simpsons. Right. Um, as a, you know, kind of tonally what, uh, what the world could be like, you know, I think Dave Pilkey's universe that he's created has a uh, has a kind of subversive Simpsons-esque quality to it where social satire, you know, commentary about the state of the public school system, things like that yeah. can thrive. Um, and you can you can kind of elevate the material to speak more to adults as well as children. What was it like working with uh, Pilkey? Uh, was he around? Did he make yeah, it looks, I Come to think of it, sorry, just come to think of it, we, we, we looked a lot at um, John Hughes movies as well, like um, Weird Science and Ferris Bueller. Well, because they're all about friendship, right? They and are. They're great, they're great friendships. They're really, uh, he has a really unique way of having his movies be subversive, really funny and somehow poignant at the same time and, and they've, they've, they've really like stood the test of time because of that. I, I think so too. I, when you know, if you're flicking around the stations and sixteen candles come on, comes on, you know, you are first struck, I think, by you know Molly Ringwald's '80s hair and whatever yeah. clothes and all that. But the universal themes are the same now in the you know kind of internet age or whatever whatever age it is that we are in right now as they were in 1985. Yeah, and he somehow sort of captures the voice of those generations, mm -hmm. you know, and then whether. It's times have changed or not, I think, yeah, like you said, the themes are universal and, uh, and they still ring true. Uh, now, working with uh, Pilkey, was he around? Was he on the set? He was, uh, 
he came in about a month after I started on the movie, and we showed him where we where we were at with um, the story and the artwork. And he was really, really generous in that he he felt very strongly that we were on the right path right. and were were on the way to capturing the spirit of what he was doing, and really wanted to not get in the weeds with us. You know, he has obviously a thriving career. He's quite prolific. He's done three Dogman graphic novels in the time we made this movie. So he really wanted to keep working um, and felt very confident and trusted us to do what we were going to do. The other, you know, really freeing thing he said was he he really dislikes movies that are word-for-word adaptations um, and are sort of slaves to the material they're based on and, and really wanted to be surprised and wanted us to bring new things to the table. So that kind of took all the pressure off of having to be precious about anything or, you know, we loved what he had done to begin with, so obviously we were very, very, um, you know, protective of the things that we felt were iconic to the series, um, but also felt completely enabled to to bring new things to it as well. Well, they are two very different forms. I mean, obviously two very different forms, but even when you think of the, the drawings that are in the book, are much different than we see here. So I guess you have to figure out a way to uh, keep the spirit of the books alive, but, you know, have a film that people are going to want to watch for an hour and a half. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and the great thing about the books is they're probably the reason why kids love reading them so much is there's sort of a surprise on every page. Mm-hmm. And he has all these uh, kind of unconventional literary devices that he uh, that he has thrown in there from, you know, the boys drawing their own comic books within the body of a, you know, of a, of a more traditional chapter book, and then, you know, these flip and even just the way he structures his narrative, you know, is very unconventional. So that, that's sort of a, a style that he created that we wanted to maintain, but obviously had to find the cinematic, uh, our cinematic versions of being unconventional, um, which is also really fun to, to figure out, you know, from the characters talking to camera to uh, moving comic books uh, done in a hand-drawn style that felt like they were created by George and Harold to, yeah, you know, to stop puppets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, did you speed up Kevin Hart's voice? No. No? No, we didn't touch it. You no, he, uh, yeah, he... He really surprised me. He, uh, you know, I knew he was funny, obviously, but I, I was, I was really pleasantly surprised by the range of acting that he did in the movie and and the, the warmth that he was bringing to the character as well. Uh, and and he was, you know, he was very mindful of, you know, trying to be a fourth grader. He's <laughs> um, so. You know, there were times where he, he, he would say something and it just sounded a little too much like a man, and he, he would he would sort of pitch himself up a bit, but not. But, but no, we didn't we didn't touch it. it. It's funny because it sounds like him, but it it, uh, it sounds like a very young version of him. So he's 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 done something to himself. You know what I mean? He's 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 found the character's voice, but yeah, yeah. that's very cool. Yeah. Um, so. What do you think? What is this? Just you know, a good time at the movies? Is this just something for parents to take their kids to as a way to spend some family time together, or is there a message in all of this? 
Oh, I think I think there's definitely a message in it. Uh, you know, no question. First and foremost, it's a it's a really fun and funny experience with the movies, but but the books go the books go deeper than that, and I think the movie certainly tries to as well. One of the things that I I, I just think is fantastic about it is that it really is a you know, both books and movie, I think, promote creativity, they promote diversity, they promote friendship, you know, and they have people talking toilets in them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did love how all the way through the movie, I think it's, I think there's like three references to it, maybe to only two, but three that I can that I, that I have in my head about uh, potty humor being the lowest form of wit. Right, I right. thought that was a really funny kind of just running gag to have, you know, throughout the film. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you can't make a Captain Underpants movie without potty humor, <laughs> uh, but we did hold ourselves to a very high standard and uh, would not go there unless it was truly, truly funny. Well, Di <laughs> Rierstein may be. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest name in the history of film. <laughs> I will take that as a great compliment. That's David Soren talking about his new movie, Captain Underpants, the first epic movie. You know, I have to compliment him. Not too many people would have a character called Diarrhearstein in their movie. He pulls it off. Next up, here's a little taste, just an amuse-bouche of my interview with Gilbert Gottfried. In this segment, we're talking about something that happened in 2011. There was a tsunami in Japan. Tens of thousands of people were killed. It was an international tragedy. And Gilbert Gottfried chose that moment to make some jokes on Twitter about it. The backlash was immediate and it was harsh. He was fired from several jobs, including some high-paying jobs, uh, one in which he played a duck for an insurance company. BuzzFeed called him a huge asshole. The blowback that he got from a series of tweets on the internet almost ruined his career. We talk about that in this short excerpt. In the coming weeks, you'll hear the entire conversation, the wide-ranging conversation, and you'll hear just how politically incorrect Gilbert Gottfried is. Here's Gilbert Gottfried, bloodied and unbowed. A lot of people have heard about uh, the Affleck uh, debacle. Oh, I, I don't know. I thought it, get, it was <laughs> kept out of the news. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's an interesting part of the documentary because it is a career high at some level, I think. And then it was taken away because of some tweets uh, that, that you put out on the internet. So it raises a couple of questions. When is too soon to joke about something, if something can be uh, seen as too soon? Uh, but the part that really got me was you are talking about a conversation with your agent. And after all this has happened and you've been fired from being the voice of the duck, he says, oh, I got you a gig and wherever it is. And you said, well, what kind of money are we talking about? And he says, I don't think you're in a position to be asking about money anymore. Yes. Tell me about that moment, because I almost got choked up saying it. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine what that moment must have been like for you. Uh, yeah. I, I remember, because it was already all the moments, all, all everything, or every second of those days. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, with the Internet, it, you know, uh, the Internet, I thought this is the entire world mm -hmm. who feels this way. That's what the Internet seemed to me like, yeah. like, like, like they took a vote of every single human being in the world and they hated me. And, yeah, he said that to me. And then, then of course, like uh, years later, when I still had a career and I still had fans, he said, oh, I always knew. That <laughs> over, uh, and but, yeah, that was a horrible moment. And I, and I remember for weeks, reporters and photographers would be waiting outside the apartment building. Some would sit in cars, some would hide in doorways like like they they found some war criminal yeah, or head yeah. of the mob and uh yeah the internet kept you know spewing hatred toward me and it was kind of like i i think the internet makes me feel sentimental about old-time lynch mobs <laughs> because at least with the old-time lynch mobs they had to go out, get yeah. their hands dirty, and deal with other people. Right. Now you sit in your underwear on the couch and form your lynch mob. And, and I didn't realize how the internet worked that way. Mm -hmm. And it was like, uh, and also, you know, what you realize, just like that old saying, you know, uh, you know, uh, as long as they get your name right. Right. Because what was There's funny, no such thing as bad publicity as long as they spell your oh, name right. Yes, right, yeah. yes. And it was like, because what I realized, whether it was a thing on the internet or any of the TV shows or news shows or radio or newspapers, they would go, you know, Gilbert Gottfried's career is over. That's our top story. Gilbert Gottfried. And, and what, what you realize then is... If your career truly is over, you're not the top story. <laughs> That's right. It all—it means you have a career if they report. So it's that, all about perspective, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they're reporting, your career's over. Your career's not over. When your career's truly over, <laughs> they don't say you could rescue ten babies <laughs> from a burning building, and they—they they won't bother. Putting you in the back of the newspaper, and um, yeah, so th so that that's you know you never hear, hey, remember when the original Dukes of Hazard went on strike and they replaced them with the two guys who were supposed to be their cousins, and then the original ones went back. Well, those two guys who played the cousins, our top story tonight <laughs> is their career is over. <laughs> <laughs> what was the reaction of fans? Because they never left you. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, this was a media created firestorm. Really. Oh yes, yeah. and and I always felt like and and like I found out through the internet that I was fired, and and it's like I've like soaked it for as much free press as they yeah. could get. Then they replaced me with a, a low budget sound alike. At thus bringing closure to a horrible yeah. tragedy, and yeah, but I, and I think as far as fans go, there there is kind of that thing that like, uh, in in a way, it kind of like is like slapping a new and improved sticker 
on on you know your right. dishwashing <laughs> liquid. They slap that on you. Oh, that's new and improved. And and I think people then they can claim they hate you and that they uh, they want you dead, but they still want to know what you have to say. Right. It's it's kind of like these people like. Uh, I don't know Bill O'Reilly or um, uh, what? What's her name? The blonde Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter. You know they, they. I think they know exactly. I think Ann Coulter knows exactly what she's doing. Like when she comes out there, she'll go. I think we should drown puppies. <laughs> And uh, go oh, cheat. And Coulter said we should drown. Oh, this is horrible. I'm going to get her book and just find out what horrible things this this dirty bitch is saying. You know, and it's like, uh, and it it fascinates people. Want it's it's kind of like I remember when Michael Richards yeah. got in trouble on the club. And, uh, you know, he said the N-word, which also is something that makes me laugh when people use terms like the N-word and the F-word. It's like, well, when you say that thing, everyone's saying the word aloud in their head. And so what What are you really... And and But the owner of that club said... Uh, from now on, if any of the comics use that word, they'll be fined. And I'm thinking, so that you're telling the audience then, uh, we've, we're uh, clean and sanitized. Yeah, we're censoring. Yeah. yeah, we're censoring it. Everything will be clean. You won't be surprised. You won't be offended. Nothing. And, and to me, that would be like saying... Okay, when you go on this roller coaster, it moves very slowly. It's always level, never drops, never raises up, never does a loop the loop, you know. Would you tweet those same jokes that got you in trouble again today? About uh, something yeah. else. Yeah. I I mean, I I I always say this, like uh, you know, people say, Do you think twice now? And I always say, I think twice but I do it anyway (laughs) that was Gilbert Gottfried talking about a low point in his career and check back because there's going to be loads more with Gilbert coming up in the next few weeks but that's it for right now it's over you don't get shows like this very often Eric Foreman Captain Underpants Iago the Parrot my thanks to Topher Grace, to David Soren, to Gilbert Godfrey, but mostly my thanks to you for listening in every single week. We put a new show up every Monday, so make sure that you come back. Tell your friends you're always welcome at the House of Krause. Come on by. You never know who's going to be here, and, and who knows? It might just be one of your favorite people.